Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hello, I'm Michael Hawk, and this is Nature's Archive. Each episode, I strive to bring you the very best guests to help us deepen our understanding of nature. I produce the podcast as a personal passion, so if you enjoy it, will you please consider subscribing, rating, and sharing this episode? It really does help. You can also support me on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. With that support, you can get extras, previews, access to ask questions of my guests, stickers, and more. Check out patreon.com slash nature's archive. Now on to the show. My guest today is Dr. Brian Brown, curator of entomology at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. A native of Toronto, Canada, Dr. Brown did his undergraduate and master's work at the University of Guelph. During the latter, under the tutelage of well-known entomologist Steve Marshall, Dr. Brown took up the study of the fly family for a day. This is a phenomenally diverse family of extremely interesting flies that, of course, we discuss at length today. In 1990, Dr. Brown obtained his doctorate at the University of Alberta in Canada, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship at the Smithsonian Institute and the University of Maryland. In 1993, he took his current position in Los Angeles. Today, we discuss Dr. Brown's work at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, in particular, the scale and diversity of the collections and the implications of that on the work that he does. We pretty quickly delve into the aforementioned forid flies. There are potentially as many as 1 million species of these flies. But to give you an idea of the diversity and scale of the work, only 4,500 have been described to date. Yes, you heard that right. Dr. Brown discusses the challenges of having so few people studying such an immense diversity of species and the approaches they take, including DNA barcoding. Even among the 4,500 described species, there are many amazing natural history stories that we get into, ranging from the aptly named coffin fly to ant decapitating forids. We weave in and out of many fascinating subjects, from research in the Amazon canopy to surprising discoveries in Los Angeles to invasive ant species. You can find Dr. Brown through the museum's website at nhm.org, on his blog at flyobsession.net, or his forid fly site at forid.net. This discussion was full of surprises and a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So without additional delay, Dr. Brian Brown. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for making time today to talk. It's very much my pleasure, Michael. I'm really excited to learn about the Natural History Museum, your own research, some of the specialties that you work on. But as I like to do, why don't we start with where did you grow up and how did you get interested in nature in the first place? I grew up in Toronto, Canada, which sounds like it might be a really cool place for a naturalist to grow up. But actually, it's a city in a relatively impoverished part of our country in terms of the fauna. So I grew up always aspiring to better nature. I was always reading books about places like the tropics and the southern U.S. and so on. I got interested in nature just by kicking around vacant lots and soon-to-be-paved-over developments. And that's what really strikes me about my childhood. So you'd see these vacant lots and it was just like a blank palette and area to discover? I was aware very early that it looked different to me than to most people. Most people saw a vacant lot as empty land to be developed. And I saw it as a treasure trove of remaining biodiversity. And do you have any recollections of interesting things? It's probably lots of interesting things that you found, but what stands out? One thing I remember coming home from school one day, there were some giant maple trees lining the road. They're long gone now, of course. But there were these gigantic wasps called megarissa that are parasites of grubs inside 
beetle grubs inside trees. And they're really big. They're about oh, six inches long with their long tails. And they can wow. bend their tails around and then down. And they drill through the wood in order to find the host beetle larvae that they lay their eggs in. And I thought this was the coolest thing I had ever seen. But some of the kids that were walking along with me smashed them. That kind of attitude towards nature really annoyed me even back then. Yeah, that's it's. I had a discussion just last night. We were talking about fireflies, and a similar topic came up. Now, these six inches, I, how much of that was tail? Oh, a good three quarters. And is that what they drilled with? Or tell me more about that. So they have a pair of sheaths, basically, and then a central ovipositor. Actually, the egg goes through. And these sheaths catch on each other. And so they can slowly inch their way through the wood. It's sharp and they've got recurved spines. So they put that sheath through and then they put their ovipositor through. And their egg gets super, super elongate as it goes through. If you can imagine one of these eggs sliding through this tiny tube to get into the beetle larva. So yeah, a lot of interesting adaptations there to make that all work. And I guess somehow they have to know that the beetle larva is in there and where it is. <laughs> yeah. So parasitoid searching behavior is something that's a very hot topic. And it's a lot of interesting stuff has been done, especially with parasitic wasps, not so much with flies. I know we're going to talk more about parasitoids as we go on through the conversation. So thanks for indulging me with that <laughs> side story. I guess my takeaway here is early on, you recognize that you were interested in nature with these vacant lots. How did that then progress to taking it on as a career? I stayed interested in it, although I was relatively isolated in my scientific interests. Like I never met an entomologist until I went to college. So that was the first time that I'd ever met someone who studied what I wanted to do. I continued my interest in insects, then got out of it for a while played in the heavy metal band, discovered girls, that kind of stuff. Then got back into it in university and uh, met some very inspiring professors and fellow grad students that got me going. So fast forward to now, you're curator of entomology at the Natural History Museum of L.A. County. It's a big natural history museum. Connect a couple of those dots as to, to how you were able to get into that position. Well, I did my Ph.D. at the University of Alberta which is in Western Canada. And after that, I went to the Smithsonian for two years on a postdoctoral fellowship. So traverse the whole continent. And then right when the L.A. Rodney King riots were happening, I got called in for an interview for the job at the L.A. County Museum. So I went all the way across the country again. And this position, almost 30 years ago, it's been a great career. It's not quite over yet, but I've haven't regretted any of it. The thing about entomology is you can do a lot of it wherever you live, just because insects are everywhere. And they're the most available form of wildlife for people, especially in urban areas. Just in our museum backyard or the garden, I should say, we've gotten hundreds of species of insects in our on-again, off-again surveys that we've done there. You could get a thousand species in a backyard here in California pretty easily, I think. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And and listeners to the podcast have heard me talk about this before, where when COVID started, like so many people, I still needed to get my outdoor fix. So I started paying a lot more attention to my backyard. I'd always paid a little bit of attention, but mainly to like the birds or the squirrels or the sort of backyard megafauna. 
And there were two things that struck me very quickly in my backyard, and that was the diversity of spiders and the diversity of surfid flies, which were really overlooked by me anyway. And oh, I can't recall how many different species of surfid flies I've had in my yard, eight or nine or 10, I think. And there's probably more. If I knew more where to look, <laughs> maybe I could find more. But uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so much fun. And you can see all of these things that, that say Animal Planet or Discovery Channel shows in terms of hunting styles and lifestyles in small scale in your own backyard, which is just awesome, I think. Yeah, one of the easiest ways to increase the visible biodiversity of your backyard is to plant a lot of flowers. And of course, you'll get those surfids or flower flies coming in and lots of native bees, as well as the introduced honeybees that also occur here. And yeah, that's the way to show off more biodiversity in your yard. What's the day in the life of curator of entomology like at a museum? I have no idea what you do day in and day out, but I know you also do research. You'd probably be really disappointed. I go into work and I do some administration. I have a staff. I have some grants that I'm working on that require my attention. And I do research. Yeah, that's a big part of my job. So as a curator, I don't teach. We don't have classes at any local university, although we are physically right across the street from USC. But yeah, I look at specimens of my insects, the things that I work on, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. We have some pretty sophisticated equipment for doing that, including a beautiful microscope camera setup that allows me to do stunning insect images and a scanning electron microscope as well, micrograph, that allows us to look at very high magnifications at structures. So my goal is to try to make more of the hidden world of my tiny little flies available for everybody. Hey, nature enthusiast. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. By making your world of tiny little flies more available to people, I mentioned some of the tools that you have. Are these based on specimens in your museum or are these specimens that you're actively seeking and collecting at the moment? The specimens I work on belong to a single family, just about entirely one family called the Foridae. When I first got to the LA County Museum, we had half a drawer of forids in the collection. Now we have, I don't know, at least a thousand drawers of them, maybe, I don't know, half a million specimens. We have built up an incredible resource of these flies. And so there's enough for me to work on. There's enough for more than one generation of succeeding entomologists to work on if they want to. So we have incredible collections at the museum. 
and what you see on display at the museum for all types of organisms and subjects is a small portion of what we actually have in the collections. The scale that you talk about of all of these drawers of specimens really speaks to, pardon the metaphor, but it's the tip of the iceberg of the diversity in entomology. So that's the thing that intimidated me a little bit about your title, because entomology is so huge. And how can one person <laughs> curate all of these things and have a specialty? So I'm guessing you have support staff and tell me a bit more about the scale and the hyperdiversity that exists within the space. Yeah, most entomologists have to focus their work on one level. And the level we usually work on is the family level. So I, for instance, am an expert on the family foraday. And I'm the only person in North America who's an expert on the family foraday. Now, you consider how many people in Southern California are experts on one species of animal. For instance, the mountain lions. How many people are studying mountain lions in Southern California? Probably more than there are mountain lions. So I work on a family that's probably the second largest family of insects in the world. There could be, I don't know, a million species of forward flies. We've only described about 4,500 of them so far. You can see that the scale is just incredible. And not only the scale of what's to do, but how you're going to deal with this in a practical way. Like when you work on a group, I don't know, a group of birds, you have 20 or 30 species maybe, you have to tell them apart. At one site in the tropics, we might have a thousand species of forid flies. How do you tell those apart? I mean, what practical way can you do that? You can't keep a thousand images in your head. You have to have identification aids like identification keys. Maybe some people are familiar with them, where you get a specimen and you look at your book and you say, okay, the first couplet says wings black versus wings yellow. Okay, so if it's wings black, you go to the second couplet and so on. And you answer questions to narrow it down to what that thing might be. That only works up to about, I don't know, 100, 200 species. After that, it's just incredibly overwhelming. And you start getting so many exceptions to these giant generalizations you have to make to try and narrow the groups down that it gets almost impossible. Yeah, the working on hyperdiversity is a big problem that we haven't been able to tackle yet, but we will be tackling with new technology in the very, well, we are tackling with newer technology now, actually. What is some of that technology that's starting to emerge to help with this? People have proposed that a small chunk of the organism's DNA can be used like a barcode, and they call it DNA barcoding, for identifying specimens. So if you get this small chunk, you can really quickly match it to one species or one very close group of species in a way that doesn't require hours of microscope time. Like for me to identify one of my little flies, when I say little, well, they range from the world's smallest fly, which I described many years ago. Most of them are around one or two millimeters long. So to, to identify one of these flies, you have to look at it under a microscope, of course. You have to look at characters of the wings, bristles on the legs, bristles on the head, and the male genitalia. So I like to tell people I spend a lot of my time manipulating tiny male genitalia for a joke, but it's true. And so you take those little male genitalia and you 
clear them and you examine them and then you have to run them through those keys, it can take half an hour to identify one specimen. And obviously that's not going to cut it in a world where there's tens of thousands of species of forids and other organisms and where our traps are bringing in thousands of specimens a day. So we can either do it the way we've been doing it for the last 250 years, just skirting the outside of the world's diversity, or we can dive in with sort of industrial level biodiversity studies where we go out and collect a whole bunch of stuff, put it in individual containers, they're called 96 well plates, extract DNA, and bioinformatically, that is by getting sequences of those chunks of DNA, the barcodes for all the specimens, using that information to cluster the specimens together. So you know that everything that has this barcode is this thing, and everything that has that barcode is something else. And if you get a barcode you haven't seen before, maybe it's something new. So you can cut out a lot of the work by doing that way. That's not to say there's no work and there's no expense involved, but it's a different kind of work. Instead of having me at my salary looking at every fly for half an hour or 10 minutes or whatever, you get technicians running through huge amounts of trap samples and barcoding them and using bioinformatics to separate them out that way. It's the only way to handle this kind of diversity, but it's contentious. So I think DNA barcoding could be an entire episode in and of itself. So I'll try to limit my questions on it. So what it sounds to me like, like I think about all of the genetic diversity in a given species, it sounds like what this process does is it abstracts away some of the variants that you would see. The barcode's an abstraction of the species, essentially. So the small variants that might occur from individual to individual within a population or within a species would not surface to the barcode level. Is that, am I guessing yeah. correctly here? <laughs> yeah, it's just like any other character, really. When we look at, I don't know, birds, and we see that one is blue and one is orange, we're making a statement when we describe that species that all other members of that species are blue and all others of that species are orange. It's a probability statement, right? So there is variation. You have to take that into account. Barcoding does exactly what you said. It takes that aspect of its genetic code and uses it to try and shortcut an identification. How much these species correspond to real species, we don't really know. We don't really know with morphological or visible character-based identifications either, because really to understand how a species works, we have to know that it's a closed breeding group, interbreeding group of organisms that doesn't interbreed with other groups. How many small insects has that been tested on? Not many. So we use characters of the genitalia, the wing venation and so on as proxies for reproductive isolation. Things that tend to look alike tend to be species. So we're doing the same thing with the DNA barcodes. Another basic question, you talked about in the, I guess, not so old days, in the relatively recent days, when you had to look at these species under microscope, and particularly the, the male genitalia, does that mean that females you were not able to identify to species, or males are just easier? 
for many groups, that's true, or vice versa. There's some groups like parasitoids, the females are much more distinctive than the males. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a, another benefit then. Exactly. Not only males and females, but immature stages too. Very cool. And yeah, I, one, one of the other mental models I use to just try to wrap my head around the diversity that exists in the world of arthropods and insects, birds, as a comparison, which people are so familiar with, roughly there have been 10,000 species of birds. That's the number of people like to banter about. And with DNA analysis, with genetic analysis, there's a lot of people that think that that number is going to double over the next decade. So even just looking at birds, which are so well studied, and it's a back to your point of there's probably more people studying birds than there are bird species. And even then, it, the outlook is doubling of number of species. So in the world of insects, it's just, it's got to be so many orders of magnitude more. Yeah. So if you take the birds, and even if you generously double the number of species to 20,000, that's still nothing compared to Flies, for instance, we have 160,000 described species of flies, and that number is certainly going to more than double. That may be 10% of what's really out there. It's crazy to think about, and each of those have their own niche lifestyle or their own dependencies in this broader food web. It's just, it's phenomenal. And some of them are incredibly specialized. There was a forward fly that was described a few years ago that was feeding on fungi inside the bodies of dead stink bugs. So this fungus was growing inside the body of carcasses of other insects. This forward fly was specialized on that. There are species that are predators or scavengers, I should say, on dead snails. So you can go out and crunch a snail and the flies will come in, but only one kind of snail. There are ant parasites that I work on. Ant decapitating flies go after them only after one host. So. They're incredibly finely partitioned out in the environment. It would just be the most beautiful tapestry of art to be able to put a real entire food web for a rainforest, for instance. Just the number of interactions would be mind-boggling. would love to get into some of the, these detailed life histories, like the ant decapitating forehead fly. And before we get there, you started to hit on some of the scope of Foraday, that you have a lot of them in the tropics, but where else do they live? And tell me a little bit more about the diversity that you see just within that family. Forward flies are found worldwide. They've even been collected on Antarctica, but inside the houses that the scientists are using there. They're uh, most diverse in the center of the world, in the tropics, in the rainforest, but they occur all the way uh, north to basically the end of vegetation and beyond. I once went on a collecting trip to the Arctic, and I was told by many people, oh, don't bother going, there's no forids. But of course, there are forids everywhere. And even though we couldn't put up our traps because there were no trees there, we used canoe paddles to stake up our insect traps, which are called malaise traps. And they look like tents with a collecting bottle on the top. And using these malaise traps, we've sampled many places in the world. And it's not unusual, like I said, in the tropics to get up to around a thousand species at a single site. And using this information, one of my colleagues, Emily Hartop and Rudolf Meyer, predicted that there were many times more species in Africa than what we expect. They predicted 100,000 species of forids in Africa alone. That's pretty amazing. 
but they can only do it with DNA barcodes because who's going to sit down and figure out all those little species? Have you found forids in the gardens by the museum? Yes, we have. We found close to 200 species in LA now. In, we found 50 new species to science that no one had ever seen before or who had, no one had ever described before, I should say, because we looked in such detail. And this was not using uh, DNA barcodes. This was using the old-fashioned method, looking at genitalia. And it was pretty surprising to many people that even here in the city of LA, where we have Caltech and all these other great institutions like Los Angeles County Museum, where I work, UCLA and so on, that a huge amount of the city's biodiversity is still unknown because it's small. Once you get down below four millimeters, you're at the frontier. I can go anywhere in the world and find new species of forward flies. I've met that challenge already. <laughs> you hit a couple fascinating specialization stories with the snail and the ant decapitating flies. Are there generalists in this family as well? One forward is one of the most polyphagous, that's widespread or generalist feeding of any fly. It's called Megacelia scolaris. It's been reared from just about any kind of decomposing organic material, including paint and boot polish. They're found in every insect zoo around the world, anywhere where people keep animals in captivity, Megacelia scolaris is going to be there. That has given forids the reputation among general entomologists as being all scavengers. If you look in a textbook, it says, Foridae, family of scavenging diptera, some are parasites with, of ants. And it's really the other way around. What we know so far is that forids are one of the largest families of parasitoids, and a few misbehaviors are general scavengers that cause problems for people. If, say, like I'm in San Jose, California, I have a small yard with some native plants, some ornamental plants, would I be able to go outside or maybe even inside and find forid flies? Are they just too small, the ones around here? What would your observation be about my ability as an amateur to go find some of these? You could find them. You have to know what they look like, of course. They have a very particular way of running. It's a jittery stop-go running pattern. So if you look at your windows when the light's coming through, there's often flies there, especially if you leave your front and back door open. That turns your house into a big malaise trap. And you can uh, get insects coming in. You can look for them at your windows. But probably the, the easiest way to attract them would be to get some decomposing meat, like some old chicken or shrimp or something. Go into your backyard and bury it about, I don't know, six inches deep. And within a couple of days, you'll see the flies coming and zigzagging, running around the ground on top of it. Forids do a great job with carrion, that's rotting meat or bodies, that's out of sight. They get out-competed by the big blowflies, like blue bottle flies and so on. Those things are monsters. They come in, they just blast eggs all over everything, and their huge larvae start chomping away. For, little forids can't compete with that. But once you bury it, then the blowflies can't get to it, and the forids go down there. There's one forid called the coffin fly that is quite famous because it's found in large numbers on buried bodies. So you'll see them in your backyard where you've buried some of the chicken or whatever you put out there. And 
three or four other species will come as well. So yeah, if you wanted to see forage, you definitely could. They're all around, but there's also so many that we don't know what they do. Like the majority of them, we have no idea. Last month, I was up in San Luis Obispo County, which is in the central coast here in California. It's looking at these beetles that were feeding on willow leaves on a trail in Montana de Oro State Park. And all of a sudden I saw there's some pupae of these beetles. Pupae are like chrysalises of butterflies. On this one pupa was one of my flies. I said, what the heck? She was there laying eggs on it. Turns out there's one a species of this fly that is a parasite of beetles. I didn't even know about it. Just trying to find the, uh, the lifestyles of these little flies is like the smallest needles in the biggest haystack imaginable. Sometimes it's pure luck. Sometimes it's systematic searching with a theme to work on, like ant parasites and fireflies. You mentioned them earlier. I did a whole study on firefly parasites, but they're there. And I've talked about parasitoids in the past with different entomologists, but just to level set everybody, can you remind me what a parasitoid is? What would qualify as a parasitoid? Sure. In insects, there's three levels of carnivory or meat eating. There's parasites, which are insects that feed in the body of other animals but don't kill them. There's predators that feed on many hosts. And there's parasitoids that feed on and kill a single host. The famous ant decapitating forid is actually a parasitoid. Yeah, all ant decapitating flies are parasitoids. There's probably... There's about 300 species of ant decapitating flies, most of which I've described. And there are hundreds more, maybe thousands more, that exist, mostly in the New World tropics. But they occur all the way up to tree line here in North America as well. So what's going on there with why, why decapitating? Yeah, this was discovered by an old geezer in Washington, D.C. back in the turn of the last century was sitting on his porch in Virginia, and he was watching some ants crawl around. And suddenly he saw one of them, the head fell off. He, he thought that was weird, and he picked up the head because he was an entomologist, and he put it in a container. And a few days later, a fly came out. So obviously it was parasitizing these ants. So that was the first ant decapitating fly. The flies laid their eggs inside the bodies of ants, and flies have this very sharp tip of their abdomen, called an ovipositor, that they can use to get between the sclerites on the ant's body. When I say a sclerite, we know insects are hard-bodied, right? They're skeletons on the outside. But if it was all just molded out of one piece, they wouldn't be able to move. So they have joints. and it's Plates come together, and they're held together by membrane. So this is a chink in the armor of the host. We call it an insect that's the victim of parasites, a host. So the flies can come along and lay their eggs through the mandibular suture. That's where the mouth parts articulate. The antennal suture, the occipital foramen, that's where the head is held onto the thorax, between the abdominal segments or between the thoracic segments. And flies may lay their eggs anywhere in the body of the hosts. Certain flies will only lay their eggs in one place. They'll only lay it in the head, only lay it in the abdomen, 
only lay it in the thorax. But often, even if they lay it in the abdomen, the larva migrates internally through the ant's body to the head where it does its feeding. There are also certain forward flies that are specialized to develop in the legs of their hosts, just feeding in the legs. So theoretically, you could get nine different forward flies from a single ant. You get one in the head, one in the thorax, one in the abdomen, and six in the legs. Given the uh, billions of ants on the earth, that maybe that's actually happened. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past forwards to do something like that. <laughs> These species that are parasitoids of ants, are they selective about which ant species? For the most part, they're very selective. And this is important because some of these flies have been used to attempt biological control of imported pest ants, like fire ants in the southeast of the United States. So you have to be very careful that you don't bring in something that will go onto the native ants and cause problems. Usually it's not an issue. There have been some introductions of forward flies without due caution, I think. So far, it hasn't caused any problems. But the argument is that the fire ants are causing much more havoc on the native ant fauna than the parasitoid would. Don't really agree with that. I don't think it's necessary to bring in questionable biological control agents, but it has been done. Yeah, it's it doesn't take too much of a leap of thought to see that going wrong in some respect. There's so much introduction and upheaval of insect species in urban areas especially, but around the world where people are through commerce are bringing in goods from all over the place. Here in Southern California, for instance, we had a spider survey and we had a healthy population of black widow spiders. In the about 10 or 15 years ago, we noticed that brown widows, a species from Africa, were starting to show up here. And within a year or two, they just about completely eliminated black widows from the urban areas of Los Angeles. That was interesting. And then, like, in the last year or so, the noble widow has come in and just about wiped out all the brown widows. Same thing with the Argentine ants. There were a big influx of them in the, what was it, the end of the uh, 1800s. They were brought in probably with nursery stock to North America. And they wipe out all the native ants wherever they are. So that was a big problem. Now, in my backyard, at least they're being completely eliminated by another introduced ant. So who knows what's going to happen next? It's a giant experiment that we're conducting without even noticing, really. Yeah. And in, in my yard, I'll have to look and see if brown widows have made it to the Bay Area. But I have a healthy population of black widows and the noble false widows coexisting, maybe without the introduction of the brown widows to kick out the black widows. Those two perhaps are able to coexist. Interesting to think about. That's the best case scenario, right? The worst case scenario is that something like the Brachymermex patagonicus, the ants that wiped out the Argentine ants here, allow the imported fire ants, which are also here, but which are suppressed by the Argentine ants, allows those things to get going. Because at least with Argentine ants, they don't sting. Yes. <laughs> I've seen some video clips. I can't remember if it was through the Natural History Museum website about some active research going on in the tropics where you're looking for forward flies and probably other things too. Can you tell me 
what you're working on in terms of understanding the diversity in the tropics. Yeah, tropical biodiversity is really astounding. It's so much higher than anywhere like here in California. And it's just inspiring and beautiful to me, even though it's also hot and full of mosquitoes and other petty inconveniences. It's just the place to be doing research. So a couple of years ago, just before the COVID pandemic, we went down to work on a tower in the rainforest. This is a atmospheric study tower that goes right up to the top of the trees. And one of my colleagues down there, Jose Rafael, had the fantastic, brilliant idea to put malaise traps, those tents with the bottles on them, at different levels in the forest. And when I looked at the samples from this material, I thought, oh my God, it's like they've discovered another continent. Things I'd never seen before, things that were super rare or new. So I said, we've got to go down there and do some more work. So we went down and made some more collections and started identifying the material that had been collected and found that in the flies, there are subdivisions of the forest that nobody had recognized before. People have looked in general at the subdivisions of the forest, like the forest floor versus the eight meters above, just above our heads, and right up at the top of the canopy. And different groups of flies, families, were using this space differently. Unbeknownst to us, we knew that based on the general studies, that about 60% of the species are only found above the forest floor. If you're a ground-level bound scientist, you're only seeing, you're seeing less than half of what's actually there. Once you get above that, you start seeing all kinds of things. And there are some families that are 90% above the forest floor. And so it's really amazing how this forest canopy or the levels in the forest is being subdivided by these animals in ways that we don't understand yet. And there are practical problems with this, not understanding it. So for instance, when someone says, well, we can do selective logging, that is go in and just take out the big trees. The forest is still there and you're not causing much damage. Maybe you are and maybe you aren't if you're destroying the stratification of the forest by doing this. I think that's really interesting because what that starts to hit on, and I, you were alluding to this and stating this actually directly, is all of them the other relationships that trickle down from the stratification of the insects. There's, there's probably predators, birds, other things that are dependent on the stratification as well. And again, a sensitive system that we don't know much about. Although I am sensitive to the insects as food argument, why we should save biodiversity. People ask me, what good are insects? And one of the uh, arguments that's often trotted out is they're food for other animals or food for birds, as if birds are more important than insects. But we all know that insects fundamentally are more important to ecosystems than any vertebrates. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> T tell me why. I don't want to answer that or leave it up to the listener, but tell me why. They just handle things at the different level, a more basal level in the, uh, in the food pyramid. They're important for decomposing. They're important for pollinating. They're important for doing all kinds of things without which life would be impossible. Birds are the know, gilded trimming on the top of the biodiversity cake, I guess. Yeah, without the insects, we wouldn't have healthy soils. We wouldn't have pollinated plants. It 
we wouldn't be transferring all these nutrients up the chain. Everything would break down. Yeah. And those sorts of services are not valued particularly. If they were, they'd be in the billions or trillions of dollars annually. But we take them for granted. So I have a listener question that I wanted to ask, and you talked about how the tropics are the place to be for this research because it's just so phenomenally diverse. And then some of the downsides, like the mosquitoes. So here's the question. And they actually started with, I'm guessing that you get this a lot, but botflies, as I understand it, botflies lay their eggs on mosquitoes and mosquitoes deliver the egg to their host. Is this true? And is it only mosquitoes doing this dirty work or are there other... I'm reading the end of this, are there other delivery mechanisms? And will the botfly larva be able to exploit any host the mosquito happens to choose? That last part, I don't think so, because botflies are specialized on certain hosts. And it may be the, uh, the mosquitoes themselves that are specialized on the hosts. I'm not sure. But yeah, botflies will lay their eggs on mosquitoes. They'll also lay their eggs on stable flies, which are another group of biting flies. And they these biting flies actually deliver the eggs. There's a great David Attenborough sequence in one of their life on, I can't remember, there's so many of those series where the, it shows the bot flies grabbing one of these biting flies and gluing the eggs all over it. So yeah, that's how it works. And it's a painful process having a bot fly larva in you because bot fly larvae, they're not feeding on your healthy tissue. Buttfly larvae have little spikes all around their body. And what they do is they twist and turn inside under your skin. And that causes lacerations. It causes tissue to be damaged. And then bacteria get in there. And the buttfly larvae actually filter the bacteria. That's what they feed on. They're not feeding on your skin. So they keep the wound relatively clean. And I say relatively. I just got tired of a dribble of pus and blood coming out of my back, but they're not like some of the dangerous flies, like screw worms, where they actually attack living tissue and they feed on that directly and they can cause real damage. Botfly larvae are generally, as long as they're not in an eye or something, inconvenient and somewhat painful, but not dangerous and gross. I, I just had a friend come back from a tour in Ecuador, and that was one of my first questions. Uh, do you did you get a botfly? And she said, I don't know yet. <laughs> so I, how long does it take yeah. before it's evident? A few days. Yeah, it'll be like a mosquito bite that doesn't really heal. And then you can start seeing the larva sticking its breathing apparatus outside your, your skin. Fun. I, I don't want to overblow that. I think people have too much fear of insects as it is. It, it, this isn't something that happens every time you go to the tropics. This is still a fairly rare thing. It's happened to me once, and I've been many times to the tropics. You can avoid those things with sensible precautions. It's just that scientists are not always sensibly precautious when it comes to the tropical forests because, number one, if you're studying flies, you don't want to wear a bunch of clothing that's been impregnated with fly-killing chemicals. And number two, when you're out there working, you lose track of time, of your surroundings, everything because it's so engrossing to sit and watch these things doing their activities. When I got my botflies, it was the time that we discovered the new type of ant decapitation in the forids. We had known for a hundred years that forids, females would go, like I said before, fly around and lay an egg inside the host. The larva would feed, and through its feeding would 
eventually cause the ant's head to fall off. That's keeping it a little bit simplified, but that's basically what happened. We found another type of ant decapitation in Fords because God knows one isn't enough. And that was a species in Brazil where the flies would be attracted to adult ants that were injured. And injured ants are super common in the rainforest. We've found that empirically just by looking, but also by studying flies that are specialized on injured ants. They just must be super, super common. So these flies, you put out an injured ant of this one species, the flies come, the females, they use their mouth parts to cut the ant's head off, and they drag it away with their prehensile forelegs. It's really amazing. They just grab the ant's head and tug on it until it falls off, and then they carry the head away and lay their egg on it. So that's the second type of ant decapitation in this family. Dr. Brown, thank you for all the time you spent today being cognizant of your time and how much we've allotted. Let's move on to some wrap-up questions. What have you found to be most effective in helping people move up a rung in environmental awareness? For me, it's I've found my years at the museum, it's really important to get out in the field with people. You can't explain abstract concepts anywhere nearly as easily as you can just showing them things. So when I take people out in the museum garden, I take them to a flower and I say, see, that's a flower fly flying in there. And see, this is a bee. Bees fly back and forth as they're going towards their flowers. And I get people phoning me weeks later saying, you never guess, I was sitting in traffic watching the insects on this median and I saw a flower fly landing right on the flowers beside me, right in Santa Monica. They get their search image and they get interested until they actually see those things. Biodiversity, like other things, are effectively invisible to them. Until you show somebody something, until they can put some kind of experience together with it, they're invisible. This happened to me in Costa Rica. I can tell a quick story. The first time I went to Costa Rica, I did my research for a couple of weeks at a research station in the rainforest, and then I came home. And somebody asked me, did you see any orchids down there? I said, no, I didn't see any orchids. Then I started getting interested in orchids. I started growing them and learning about their different structures and what they look like. And the next time I went down to the tropics, to the very same place, I saw orchids everywhere. So yes, my eyes my retinas registered those photons coming off those orchid leaves. But until you get a, some kind of knowledge or some kind of experience with them, they're effectively invisible to you. It's a green wall. So I think that we need to get people, especially kids, out into nature and show them things, get them interested in them, and not leave them to just experiencing nature from TV shows. When you're Showing people insects in particular, and I'm thinking of flower flies, a lot of the flower flies are quite small. Do you have additional visual aids? Like here it is, but it's so small. Here's a blown up picture. Look at how beautiful it is. Or just let them experience the raw nature. I don't use any aids. You can use magnifiers that go onto binoculars that make them focus a lot more closely. Some people do that. Or you can get reading glasses, the three power ones, even if you don't need them. You put them on and looking at flowers becomes a whole different world. But really, the things aren't that small. Even the tiny one millimeter long forward flies that are parasites of fire ants, we work on without any kind of uh, visual aids. It's more learning how the animals move, how they look, 
what color they are and so on. You can see quite a bit. Very cool. That's a great tip with the reading glasses. I mentioned that to somebody myself <laughs> recently, and I don't do it enough personally, but I've done it in my backyard. That's for sure. And do you have any upcoming projects or activities, either personally or through the museum, that you'd like to highlight? I do, but I don't know if they're highlightable. I plan to continue working in the tropics, making new discoveries. I like to try to find unknown life histories, things that will be captivating to the general public. Because if there was one thing I could point to as the best result from my work, and that would be saving tropical rainforests. That is my ultimate goal, to get people to care or even to think about tropical rainforests when they wouldn't. Again, not to look at a chunk of land as so many bored feet of timber or so many cattle grazing units, but as an interconnected community that needs to be protected. And uh, I think it's time for Westerners with all their money to put their money where their mouth is and to support conservation organizations in the countries where these forests occur to a much greater level than they do now. Do you have any organizations that you would like people to support that you want to call out here? Rainforest Trust, Nature Conservancy, and there are tons of smaller ones where you can make a much bigger difference as an individual because their needs and their budgets are smaller. I think also the work being done by Dan Jansen in Costa Rica is really inspiring. Going down there, making his career the study and preservation of the habitat in which he works, which is the tropical dry forest in Guana, Costa Rica. That must be just gut-wrenching for him to see the loss of biodiversity over the last couple of decades, and largely not due to anything that's going on there in Costa Rica in particular. I think that a lot of this global insect loss is due to climate change. I mean, insects are highly oriented towards timing of events in the forest. So if they're waiting for the rain to come, they hatch out. And there's no rain, no new vegetation for the caterpillars to feed on. They all die. Then that's it for that generation. And this is happening all over the place. You have to uh, go around the world and go to rainforests. And everybody will tell you, oh, the timing is off in the last decade. It doesn't work anymore. The rains are two months later or come in the wrong time. And I think this is the biggest problem that we face. On a personal level, you telling me that makes me realize that so much of what I've attributed insect loss to has been pesticide use. And you saying that really, really brings home the point of climate change being so pervasive. I hadn't thought about that with respect to insects, but yeah, it certainly makes sense. Yeah. It didn't come home to me until I went to the middle of the Amazon and everybody told me the same thing was happening there. And they're not using pesticides per se in this area. They're not, they're surrounded by the biggest forest left in the world. And yet they're still having these same problems. It's clear to me that it's a global problem, not a local one. And pesticides don't help. Well, thank you for bringing that to light. I think Hopefully others are drawing those same connections that I just drew. And people want to continue to follow you, follow your work, social media or through the museum. Where can they go? Well, that's a good question. I'm not a high profile sort of person, but 
You can keep up with me at the museum, the Natural History Museum, nhm.org. I have a blog that's got a lot of information about flies called flyobsession.net. And if you're really interested in forid flies, not many people will be this interested, but forid.net, P-H-O-R-I-D.net is my resources for scientists. Let me say there's only like, probably there's only three scientists in the world who are currently employed to work on forward flies, even though they're probably a larger group than all the birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and fish put together. <laughs> Mind-blowing. And thank you for doing that work and surfacing everything that you have through that work. is just amazing to think about. And speaking of thanks, thank you. I really appreciate you and the time you've spent today and the work that you do. I hope that you've had a good time chatting today. Sure. I could go on and on, but <laughs> you've got time constraints too. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.